It's July once again, and my thoughts naturally turn to Hacker Summer Camp. Black Hat, B-Sides, FuzzCon, DEFCON. I'm attending in person this year, as are a lot of the people in the InfoSec world. And for a lot of us, it's our first time out in more than a year. So lots of questions. For instance, how do we interact with each other again? And more importantly, what do we want from those interactions, which in the past sometimes meant excluding parts of our community? Rather, I choose to see this as a fresh start to create a new community within InfoSec. To learn more about what we can do better, I reached out to somebody who really knows the strengths and weaknesses within the InfoSec community very well. If you only know one thing about Jack Daniel, it's that he's first and foremost a people person, a community guy. In fact, that is his role at Tenable. Even outside that role, Jack is a refreshing industry voice, one that should carry considerable weight as we collectively start to emerge from a worldwide pandemic. We went through a pandemic. The last time we had one of those was over a century ago. There are only a couple people alive now who were there. They don't remember it because they were in diapers. This is a global pandemic. It's changed a lot of things. I don't know if I'm the same person. In 2021, Jack is vaxxed and already hitting the road in style. Yeah, I'm visiting my son, so I just have my tiny old motorhome. Uh, is, uh, it's a little tired, but it's basically a mobile office, and multiple monitors and hotspots and everything, so that when I travel, I can uh, pretend I'm not. So before we go to Vegas again, before we return to Sector or any of the other favorite conferences we might attend, Let's take a moment and consider how we can emerge from our quarantine and really do this right. Welcome to The Hacker Mind, an original podcast from For All Secure. It's about challenging our expectations about the people who hack for a living. I'm Robert Famosi, and in this episode, I'm talking about hacking communities, about how after a COVID-induced pause, we can start to acknowledge and even re-engage with some of the small and wonderfully diverse hacker communities that have been, at times in the past, left behind in our rush toward corporate conferences and sometimes toxic influencer-based social media. Yeah, that's a pretty tall order, restoring those voices. But after talking with Jack, I do feel more than ever that it's not entirely outside of our grasp. One of the problems in InfoSec is that a lot of us are introverts. We're happy at the keyboard, but when it comes to real human interactions, that's sometimes hard. Not for everyone, of course. Some of us are real good at the human side of things. Often when we do connect, we're exposed to new ideas. The less siloed we are uh, in our own minds, in our own communities, in our uh, industries, uh, in our clubs, uh, the more we get exposed to different ideas. You know, I think, uh, I forget the Mark Twain quote, but Eric, was it Twain? I, I like to credit him for all the quotes I like because he was a, a bitter old man, but he had a sharp sense of humor. And that's something I, uh, I got the bitter old man part down and I'm working on the humor. What's the quote? Travel is detrimental or deadly to prejudice. Often we're afraid of the things that we don't know. And that includes even people and cultures. 
So leaving our homes, traveling is the best way to overcome that fear that we have of the rest of the world. You, you have to meet people. And it's one of the things I'm sitting here in my, my old little motorhome, little tiny thing, but it, uh, it has been across the U.S. back and forth many times and up and down the East Coast and through the upper Midwest and the central states uh, repeatedly. And um, whenever the schedule allows and it fits on the roads, it's just the size of a pickup truck, but it's a little tall. Um, I get off the highways and I get into the back roads. When I'm traveling, I often find it's better for me to walk rather than ride a taxi around a city I've never been in before. By walking the sidewalks, I learn the lay of the land. I find the hidden local spots for coffee and food. With his mobile home, Jack is doing something similar. One of the observations I have, and I don't care where your politics lie, um, man, get off the interstates. Um, see the places that... Uh, that feel left out. You know, I, I, I had a rather prosaic comment about it, which is, you know, you, you get off the interstates, you see the places that time forgot and the people it never knew. Going back to the 1950s, the U.S. interstate system was designed to bypass populations and therefore expedite travel. It was also designed under President Eisenhower to move military troops and vehicles from point A to point B. But that's another story. So, what about all those people and businesses that you no longer see? The ones that live away from the freeways, the ones who actually live and work in the communities that you've chosen to sail past. If you don't take care of them, I don't care what your politics are. You're not taking care of us. Not to sound too terribly idealistic, but if you're not taking care of those people who were left behind and some of the stories we know, you know, I drive through Pennsylvania and see the steel and coal that's gone. And, uh, you know, the hollow, empty uh, factories in different places, um, some of the stories are known, but you, uh, you see mills, you see uh, cotton gins, you see um, mines that have shut down, you see places, and uh, every now and then there's a, somewhat of a success story, but, um, you know, you, you see that, and, uh, you know, get off the roads. Consider Route 66 the highway through the Southwest United States that inspired a hit 1960s TV series. Once I-70 and other interstate freeways were constructed, whole towns disappeared, some overnight. And, but what's also fun there is to see the people that are, um, that are coming up with creative ways to do something. Uh, one of my favorite ones lately is a small town in Southern um, Arizona called Ajo. It was a mining town. Okay, I had to look this one up. Ajo, A-J-O, Arizona, is on Highway 85 with Interstate 8 to the north and the Mexican border to the south. With the interstate, the town got left behind. Due to some labor disputes and, you know, mining, even open pit mining is, is a rough job. So, uh, you know, that people wanted to be paid fairly was their complaint. And the cost of copper and the, the competition from overseas, the mine closed and the large parts of the town. It was a company town. Large parts of the town were bulldozed. The old part of town stayed, and there was not much work there. The story could have ended here, but the town chose to remain relevant and reinvented itself and become, instead, a tourist mecca along the U.S.-Mexican border. And it's an art community. It has some of the best street art painted on the walls. 
you walk uh, basically a, a well, one block wide area by about four blocks long in the old part of town. And it's this gorgeous square and there's just amazing art. And there's a school that does art there and gets a lot of snowbirds. Uh, it's, you know, South Arizona. So from now until October, it's a little toasty, but, um, and like all of the West, they're short on water, but you know, not everybody can be an art town but it's great seeing um, people it's like yeah we want artists what are you doing about it? i don't know i'll tell you what we're going to do we're going to open all of the walls except for the old uh, adobe in the in the square to uh, artists to paint uh, it's like as soon as you drive into the town your first thought is hey this is a cool town Small towns left behind by the interstate system in the United States provides a great metaphor for what might be happening in InfoSec. What started as a small community of like-minded people on BBSs, then gathering in the desert of Las Vegas each summer, has become a sprawling business, for lack of a better word. How do we continue to accommodate those diverse voices that don't often get heard at the big conferences or even included in the large corporate events? How do we reinvent those small communities within InfoSec? Jack is probably best known as one of the three co-founders of the popular B-Side security conferences. The name comes from old vinyl records. With 45 RPMs, you had one hit song that you wanted to sell but then you had to put something on the back. Sometimes though, the B-sides of these 45s contained, well, really good songs. For example, the Beatles' Revolution was a B-sides. Same thing with the Rolling Stones' You Can't Always Get What You Wanted. And so was Queen's We Will Rock You. So B-sides was born of a frustration that there were some great talks that didn't fit in the larger conference structure and therefore didn't get accepted by the major conferences like Black Hat and DEF CON. So Jack and his buddies wanted to understand first why these talks were getting rejected. And what they found was some of these talks, while great, might only appeal to about 20 people. That wouldn't pack a big conference room at Mandalay Bay or Caesars. But does that mean that they shouldn't be heard? At that time, back in 2010, Chris Nickerson was renting a house in Las Vegas, away from the Strip. The house had this one large main room, so Jack and others decided to put on their own smaller organic alternative conference. And so, during the Hacker Summer Camp that year, B-Sides was born. This standalone do-it-yourself model for security conferences has since spread to all parts of the world today. B-Sides used to all be in-person events, and then... March of last year, this thing happened and the world kind of changed. Um, I last interviewed Jack in January of 2020 in honor of B-Side's 10th anniversary. And at the time, he was looking forward to traveling to London and Tel Aviv and yes, Las Vegas. And he was also talking about how Mubasa, South Africa, had just planned its first B-Sides. Of course, with COVID, that travel didn't come about. You know, it's it's been rough from the B-Sides world watching... Uh, parts of the world um, go into, uh, you know, particularly our friends in India. I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not pinging them and asking them how they're doing because uh, a couple of them, I've reached out, I've talked to a couple of folks that are part of the B-Sides family there. And it's like, wow, that's bad. Uh, same thing has happened in various other countries, including here in the United States. And those upcoming B-Sides events that Jack and I talked about, they too had to either be canceled or shifted online. And there have been over 50 B-Sides events since then, which have been held virtually online. 
The desire to create B-Sides events continues. After more than a decade and more than 600 events in 174 cities and 47 countries, B-Sides shows no signs of slowing down. Uh, I spoke to a few weeks ago, I spoke to uh, some folks in uh, Tallinn in Estonia, which has a great tech community, and they're uh, kicking it off. I, I just spoke to someone this morning who is trying to bring a, a B-Sides to uh, Milton Keynes in the UK. Um, I spoke to people in Fort Wayne, Indiana a couple of weeks ago. Sometimes you're only addressing a small local audience with a talk. I spoke to uh, some folks who do a lot of maritime cybersecurity and industrial control kind of um, technology security in the maritime industry, both for the, the yachts as well as commercial stuff who want to do uh, B-sides in, in Palma the port, the big port city in Mallorca. And, you know, they, they want to do it in the right season where the captains and crews, particularly that the technology crews can come to Palma for a weekend or whatever and talk technology and, you know, get, have regular security talks and things to run it, but have a couple of people come in and, and talk specifically to the, the pains of that industry. And so, you know, those are just a couple, I know I'm, I'm missing a few other ones, but that's just recently, you know, Indiana, um, and like I said, Talon, Estonia, that's, there's nothing, you know, Milton Keynes. I mean, it's all on a giant spreadsheet uh, because no matter what your problem is, Excel is the wrong answer and we use it anyway. Sometimes it's cultural. You might not want to leave the country, yet some people will find it hard to travel nonetheless. There are things that are close, but uh, not everybody travels. You know, the UK has a different attitude towards travel than we do in the U.S. I grew up in Texas. The idea of an eight, eight hour road trip to get somewhere because yeah, it's like an hour to get to the airport and you have to sit around for an hour and then it's an hour flight and you have to rent the car and let's just get in the car and go. You know, I mean, that's what I grew up with. Uh, in, uh, and so the idea of an eight hour road trip, um, yeah, I don't know if you can, you can't circumnavigate the, the British, uh, the main island in Britain, you know, but you can go a long way. <laughs> You can cover most of the country, uh, but they don't do that. So it's like, oh, okay. Bringing a small conference like B-Sides to a remote community, that has its advantages. If people who wouldn't otherwise travel have something brought to them, that's awesome. Uh, you know, Talon doesn't have a Black Hat or an RSA and, and won't. Um, uh, Palma, you know, Mallorca, um, it's a tourist area. It, you know, it, It's a tourist area, but there's an industry a maritime industry that serves the tourists and it's also in the Mediterranean, which obviously has a ton of shipping, uh, commercial stuff. And so we're bringing, you know, they are bringing, um, these sides, they're bringing security education, approachable security education to, to new communities. Jack, as you've heard, is a people person. How has the shift to online B-sides affected him and others? We all miss seeing each other. Um, although a lot of us, you know, that are vaxxed and starting to see people again, it's like, how does this people thing work? Uh, you know, it takes a little getting used to it because I used to be at huge events all the time. Once he was vaccinated, Jack made an attempt to meet with other people again. Even though everybody was safe and it was a very small group, 
It was still difficult making the adjustment. You know, I was I was at a event with uh, 12 people and we spent a few days um, near each other and meeting up and everybody was vaccinated and we spent most of our time outdoors. But still, at the end of three days, we were all like, that's enough people. This, I think, is another underlying issue within InfoSec conferences. We're all different. And as I said, a lot of us tend toward being introverts. Going to DEF CON with 20,000 of your closest friends might be overwhelming, a bit too much. I know, I often retreat to my hotel room just to get away from it all. That's an issue. By retreating to my room, I'm making a choice to not hear maybe the best talk of the entire conference. The reason I even came to that conference. There are people that feel that way all the time, and it doesn't take three days and 12 people to feel that way. And we've often made it difficult for them by not sharing with them, uh, making them deal with crowds. And, um, you know, some events have made a real effort to make uh, quiet areas or to have it, you know, have some areas for uh, escaping the, the madness. Uh, conferences that have hotel room, you know, they're at hotels. You can retreat to your room when you can't take any more. But when you retreat to your room, you miss content. But I hope that as we go forward, uh, uh, a lot more content is put online uh, So for the people that uh, don't want to join us or can't join us for a whole, whole bunch of reasons. In person, there's an opportunity to reach out to new people, people who might otherwise lurk online. But if you can get the back room at the local pub for free or just just spend at least 200 bucks. I'm like, have, have, have you seen us? Do you have any idea how much beer we drink? That's great. You get people together and you talk and you, you meet people and you can see who's shy. And if you've got people who've gotten over their own shyness in the crowd, um, you know, they can take it from there. Right. You, you, and so they're, they're just very different. Um, and at, uh, you know, at that little meetup level, it's easy to do online with a, a variety of platforms. It's also easy to do, um, but as far as a conference, yeah, it depends on how big an event you do. If you're somewhere where the Microsoft people will let you borrow a big room in their office or two rooms in their office um, or college or university or even high school um, will let you do it or there's and you can afford it somehow through sponsorship or, uh, you know, registration fees. You go to a, a hotel with a conference facility or go to a dedicated conference facility or buy out a blues club or, you know, all, all sorts of things, you know, I, I've, I've been at, uh, you know, events that have been at, at blues bars, I've been at events that have been in theater spaces, I've been at events that have been in con lots of conference centers, I've been in abandoned restaurants, we had to clean up and convert. Um, uh, it, it, there's, there's a whole bunch of uh, diverse options. Um, but for a lot of us, we miss seeing people. COVID has exposed the fact that some people just can't travel for in-person events. So attending remotely, I think that should remain an option. So uh, putting things online and, you know, putting conferences online, everybody wants, not everybody, most people that I talk to in the B-Sides world can't wait to be back together. But we've also seen how important it is to a lot of people that can't travel, whether it's for the pandemic or their budget, or it's just the idea of being in a crowd of people is not good that's fine taking new approaches to things that open us up to uh bringing new people in uh sharing information in new ways that's that's brilliant
There's work to be had whether you're renting out a dance hall or putting up an online platform. The virtual stuff has some real advantages. Um, but speaking very personally, doing things virtually doesn't give the level of reward to a lot of people, myself included, that being there in person does. The amount of work I put into B-sides, it takes a couple of thank yous or, hey, I just wanted to let you know that uh, because of B-sides, I have my dream job. A few of those a year uh, is like, that's fuel for the fire that keeps you plugging. You can also get thank yous online, right? Much as everybody appreciates getting that online. If you're running down the hall at DEF CON and, and somebody says, hey, Jack, got a second? And stops you and, and shakes your hand or gives you a hug back when, you know, we didn't die from hugging each other. Um, <laughs> you know, if you're into hugs, if you're not into hugs or handshakes, fist bumps, head knobs, what nods, whatever, that's, that's fine too. But, you know, those, those little personal interactions and sometimes larger ones, but man, those little in-person things are, are very powerful for me and a lot of other people. The decision to go online might seem easy. Why not? Well, for one thing, apart from the platform, you have to consider the in-person experience. I mean, have you really thought about it? How are you going to reproduce that? It depends. If you want to have the feel of an online conference, then the challenges are how do you handle Q&A? How do you handle connectivity issues? How do you handle scheduling? Um, how do you get that feeling of the hallway track? Which is, you know, you talk to a lot of people, the hallway track is often where the magic is. Um, that's really hard to do online. Um, and streaming can be a nuisance. You have to find a platform. You have to think about what you're going to use for cameras, if you're going to record it, if you're going to do split screen to grab uh, the slides. This might seem academic, but it is a real issue. Some online conference platforms only give you a choice, slides or the presenter. Or they stick the presenter in a small picture-in-picture -picture frame in the lower right-hand corner. That doesn't always lend itself to a good presentation. You know, a lot of conferences tend to focus on the slides. What happens if you have an animated presenter, uh, probably an experienced presenter who uh, whose slides support the presentation, uh, you know, and slides support the presenter instead of, you know, a lot of the death by PowerPoint stuff we all hate where, um, you know, and it's what we all do at first because we don't know any better. You know, there are too many words on the slides and there's too much. And if you don't cover the slides, you miss half the talk. Um, you know, those are hard things to manage. A few of the online conferences have presenters pre-record their presentations as opposed to doing them live and have done so with mixed success. And if you have people record it themselves, what do they do? How do you do it? There's, there's that sort of thing. If you get, um, if you just do a, a Zoom group or a Google Hangout or whatever, Google is not killed off yet or whatever platform you want to use, use some of the newer stuff. Uh, Toucan is a new one that looks kind of promising, but I don't know. And I'm, I'm blanking on the name of the other one. There's another one with a really common name that I can never remember because it's too common a word, but um, you know, if, for informal gathering to do a virtual version of a city tech meetup or something, that, that's okay. Cause you're not trying to do that whole experience, the whole conference experience. With a pandemic raging throughout 2020, people have naturally turned to social media. 
There are lots of pros and cons to this. In episode 22, I talked with Live Overflow, who has over a half million followers on YouTube. We talked about the rise of social media infosec influencers and whether or not some of these influencers had actually done the work to merit them talking about hacking or whether it was all showmanship. On the one hand, you're creating your own YouTube content that is a creative solution to a bad situation. On the other hand, the one with the loudest voice tends to win. Well, you know, first of all, the past year and a half has made it so that uh, if you want to be heard, you need to do something. You got to find a way to, to make your voice uh, heard. And if you can do that, that's great. And if you can do it without having to follow a, an established path, that's, I mean, I mean, I think that's great. I wanted to know Jack's opinion of social media. It can really cut both ways. It can give a voice to people who otherwise would not have one. And it could be a cudgel to silence those who don't have many defenders. So we all want to be people, but let's let's be careful. As a reminder, you know, a lot of people aren't uh, as nice. InfoSec Twitter, while introducing great people, has, at time, become predictably toxic. And as a consequence, some really good people have chosen to leave. Which hurts the community overall to have their voices silenced, even if it is voluntary. As long as we think about the platforms that we use and how uh, much they support abuse, because of course, you know, Facebook and Twitter and particular, you know, those two in particular is going to be an ad based uh, system instead of subscription based. We all just groaned because we knew it was going to be, was going to become toxic and there were going to be special people in the, the blue check mark celebrities can be racist and misogynistic and homophobic. And if you, uh, if you're mean to them in response, you get banned um, because it's really important to have those multi-million dollar, multi-million follower people in that platform. Facebook. Ugh. Facebook is a very special form of social media. Um, Facebook is a different animal altogether. Actually, Facebook is a whole bunch of different animals altogether. And um, many of them are rabid, uh, many are venomous, and a few of them are good. Okay, so... In an emergency, Facebook can be good. Uh, there's a couple of neighborhood groups uh, down in my little town. And if you lose a dog or you find a stray cat that looks like it's not a, a you know, neighborhood feral cat, you jump on that, the, you know, lost and found pets. And boy, you, you, you reunite the critters with somebody. Um, the um, neighborhood watch group isn't a bunch of busybodies. It's like, hey, it was... Uh, you know, anybody else's power out is, uh, you know, the tornado went through a couple months ago and instantly for those that had power, it's like, everybody, okay. Does anybody need anything? I got a chainsaw and a pickup truck, you know, let me help you. Um, uh, you know, there's a more general one, which is like, Hey, just, you know, not necessarily safety, whatever, but it's how people stay in touch. And it's like, wow, this little corner of Facebook is really nice. And people are nice and cool. And then you look at the rest of it and it's a don't you think social media could be so much better than the schoolyard taunting and teasing that we see today? You know, as you said, people with different platforms and whatever, whether or not they're being inclusive of other voices and, and such uh, is an issue. Um, but I think anybody that's, that's pushing boundaries, that's trying new things, let's give it a try. Let's keep an eye on it. Let's see what happens. If it, if it ends up being good, that's awesome. If it ends up being less than good, let's make some constructive criticism and see if we can make things a little better. The online InfoSec community has been pretty good about calling out the jerks. 
At the end of the day, there's probably a core group of influencers who you can follow, and they're pretty good. But it's important to remember, just because someone doesn't have thousands of followers doesn't make them any less significant. You know, part of the reason I love this community is because I love the people. I'm at a point where the technology, I focus on my day jobs, technology, and a couple of specific interests, but I'm not all over all technology and all security, cool hackery stuff anymore. Um, I put my efforts mostly into people and let them have that fun because that's that's fun for me. But um, And we tend to have amazing people in our communities with a minimum number of um, jerks. They tend to be loud, and so it's easy to see them, um, but they're way more good people. But out there in the world, man, if, you, if you've seen anything about airplanes, if you've seen anything about public transit, people are jerks. Be careful. You know, take care of each other. And, you know, we'll, we'll eventually get there. In addition to B-Sides, Jack contributes behind the scenes to the Diana Initiative, an annual conference committed to helping all those underrepresented in information security. I have an informal role, but I have... Um, I've actually taken on a, a role of uh, a, a backup treasurer for them, and I've um, been involved uh, with their treasurer in um, helping guide them through the 501c3 process. You know, sharing what I've learned, uh, the mistakes that I've seen and made, as well as things that went well for us in setting up a, a 501c3, and have um, chatted with with them when they as they've grown and faced some challenges with um, yeah, running a conference and hitting a pandemic and not everybody being as understanding as they should be about that and other things. But it's, uh, to be blunt, it, I, I provide the insights where I can and the support I can, but I try not to talk about it a whole lot because, man, I, mean, I don't think we need a whole lot more straight old white dudes um, trying to step into that spotlight. One of the areas that gets dicey is the ratio of men to women in InfoSec. It's been a problem, and it remains a problem to this day. There are some really great women out there. So how does a straight white man go about being inclusive and amplifying their voices without coming across as patronizing? I'm happy being a gaffer or, or grip in that production and being um, and letting them lead and uh, and encouraging them and supporting them in the, in the ways I can. But Diana is is doing things, and you know, diversity and inclusion programs have uh, challenges. You know, what's what's uh, is there a specific goal? Are you going to be um, exclusionary to support your diversity goals, which in some cases I think is legitimate, and others, you know, it really depends. And so, you know, they have addressed those things, as have other. Um, diversity and inclusion programs, you, you struggle with, um, you know, the, the ideas of opportunity and do certain groups get advanced opportunity. But I think they've, they've, um, they've walked the line pretty well. They're not exclusionary, but they make it clear who they're trying to support. And uh, it's, it's a good group. And most of the people involved in it are friends of mine. So, I, you know, I'm very supportive of that. So what then are the ways that these older white men can successfully contribute I think amplifying other people's messages 
um, is is the key. So if you have, uh, you know, let other people's voices be heard. And if you can help amplify those messages uh, without injecting yourself into it, other than to make it clear that you support them, um, that's good. And you can ask how you can help without being in the way, how you can help without stealing the spotlight. Uh, that well over a decade ago, I uh, started speaking more and more in larger and larger groups. And uh, it quickly came to me that it, the, um, once the spotlight falls on you, uh, I came up with a, with a corny saying, always, always carry a pocket mirror so that when the spotlight shines on you, you can, you can reflect some of that back onto somebody that needs it or somebody that's, that's, um, hasn't seen spotlight yet. And sometimes that's a big thing. And sometimes it's a little thing. Sometimes it's grabbing a, a friend that's trying to break into the industry at the end of one of your talks or in the middle of one of your talks and being like, Hey, Sarah, come here. No, you on stage. Now here's Sarah. These are the challenges people face me. It's these challenges are real. She's graduating in a couple of months and can't get a job, even though we claim that we have this shortage of people. We talked a moment ago about toxicity with online social media. Here, too, in person, in different organizations, you also need to be mindful of the trolls as well. Don't put up with nonsense. Um, that's the other one. You know, don't, don't, don't feed the trolls. Don't, um, don't put a spotlight on the unpleasant people. And there are plenty of those. And you know, our social and political world has grown exceedingly polarized. Uh, there's a lot of conspiracy theories. There is a lot of uh, general badness. I'm trying to be very careful here, as, but, you know, we're looking at each other. You, you see the old hippie with a Lukenbach, Texas sign on my RV. So you, you get an idea where I am. But it's, like, um, you know, don't steal the spot. If you're trying to amplify a voice, make sure you're amplifying others' voices. a supporting actor in somebody else's production doesn't mean you should not speak up or look the other way when you see something wrong. If you see things that aren't right, um, call them out as being not right. When you see stuff online, don't be afraid to like complain. And I'll I'll say this. So I, I, I work at a company and we're publicly traded and we have big customers and we have to do our annual training and we do annual you know uh, basic security training because not all of us came out of the you know the the security mindset we're not all hackers so a lot of people need to be reminded about privacy and data breaches and what's appropriate and what's not and ethics especially in a publicly traded company and making a safe workspace non-hostile workspace non-discriminatory workspace and when you find something there that's wrong um you know, complain about it, complain about it to management. When management says something that's tone deaf, tell them politely and explain why it's tone deaf. And sometimes the effort to create or teach sensitivity backfires. Again, when you see something wrong, say something. What bothers you might bother somebody else. One that frustrated me, I recently took a, uh, uh, I forget what they called it, but it was, you know, it, it was a part of a diversity and inclusion program, ongoing training of um, you know, safe workspaces and non, non-harassment. And uh, one of the questions uh, was about, you know, we, basically they're trying to get you to talk about, think about protected classes. 
but they said, you know, which of the following um, would would likely be um, inappropriate, um, uh, you know, and, and to, to talk about or make fun of. And, you know, they, they made the obvious ones. So religion, race, uh, you know, gender presentation, sexual orientation, uh, the ones you expect. But then they had a couple of throwaways that they said weren't, that the correct answer was that they were not a challenge or they, you know, they're, they're not a, a, an issue. And one of them was, it was about teasing people about the college they went to and it just set off all sorts of alarms. Everyone's university experience is personal and sometimes hard. Choices are made for a variety of reasons, some of which are economic. I went to a private university, but I went on massive financial aid. So right there, there may be assumptions to be made. My best friend, he went to a state school. We're still really good friends, but he occasionally brings it up in conversation as though it might be a barrier between us. It's not. It's just some schools are better at some things that you want to study, be it a public or a private institution. So teasing someone about where they went or didn't go to school, I see that as a definite problem. Because that's... Um... That's a naive point of view, because if I make fun of you for going to Smith, it's like, oh, you don't like women who've taken women's studies classes. Um, that's what you might be saying by saying that. If you make fun of somebody for going to Morehouse or another historically black college or university, um, you know, if you make fun of somebody for a stunning school, you'd be dumb to make fun of somebody's academic achievements who uh, has a degree from yeshiva. But, um, you know, making fun of yeshiva football, I don't know. But it's just like, you know, that's kind of naive because there are universities that say a lot about who you are. Or there are a lot of, there are universities and colleges that, um, could be used to make some assumptions about who you are that, that not everybody that comes out of any of these schools is the same. Right. Um, but you know, just things like that. And so I made sure I raised it. It's like, you know, that's, that's not necessarily safe. Another good point. Don't generalize based on the name of the school. Again, different schools excel in different areas. So maybe that was the best fit for someone. There are a lot of great schools, but you, uh, people often make assumptions, right. You know, and that may not be true. Uh, there are people that, that are in part that grow up in cultures or go to school in cultures and have a, a, a visceral reaction to it and bounce away from those ideas. But still, no, you know, don't, don't make fun of somebody for Smith or Morehouse or Yeshiva or, you know, why don't you just not do anything? If you want to whisper, go dogs versus roll tide as you walk around the office down, down South, but that's, that's completely different. Sports. Okay. Now that's another matter. Is it probably okay? Is it, um, is it uh, you know, I'm down in Georgia these days. Is it the guy from Alabama walking past the, the cubicle yelling roll tide every time you go by? It's like, yeah, that's just childish sports stuff. That's fine. Uh, but, you know, there's, you take some judgment. And anyway, just little things like that. It's like, yeah, that's college and university. And then I, I remember hovering over clicking and I'm like, all right, I know the answer they want, but that's the wrong answer. And I'm going to make sure somebody hears it.
So there comes a point in life where you might begin to criticize everything. You know, nothing's good. Nothing is perfect. Nothing is as it was or should be. You might start to become that cranky old man or woman down the road. But that's, you know, it's very hard to do because a lot of this is is opinion, and I think their opinions are wrong, but that's not how opinions work. But uh, I really think that uh, looking at things and trying to understand the perspectives. And, you know, the past couple of years, particularly in the U.S., we've, past year in particular, we've, um, we've seen them see things. The problem is when somebody takes an issue and claims it for themselves, for themselves, not for the civic community, not for the betterment of everybody else. We've also seen people take advantage of the global spotlight and try to subvert um, things for their own good. So if we look at the Black Lives Matter movement, um, I think there are people that have uh, tried to profit off of it um, and dilute the message. And I don't say that to attack anyone in particular, but it's just a really good example. And if you've paid attention, if you're my age and you paid attention to the anti-war movement in the 60s and 70s, uh, there were people that uh, did it for their own glory, not because they really cared about outcomes. And we have those people too. And if you spot that, um, I don't know, if you don't if you don't think calling them out is right, that's fine, but uh, not supporting the, the fake people. And we're not talking about the imposter syndrome here, which I've discussed before, where legitimately talented people feel they are not interesting enough to talk to others about their own work. No, they, they have a right to speak. They've done the work. Rather, we're talking about the charlatans. We're talking about the megalomaniacs who have no talent that seem to consume a lot of oxygen in the room whenever they speak. Um, I've just given you a bit of advice that's really hard. Some of it's really hard to follow, but uh, it comes back to amplify the voices uh, that should be amplified and hear what people say when they're frustrated. Hear what people of, you know, people from the LGBTQIA community, uh, people of color, um, people who are immigrants, people in uh, religions which may not uh, be as popular in the U.S. Too often we rush to judgment, myself included. Rather, we should all learn to take a pause and just listen to other people. When you hear from people about a problem before you say anything as a, you know, old white dude, stop and think, uh, process it, try to understand it. Uh, don't ask them to explain it unless they're a friend and you ask if it's okay. Don't, you know, don't, don't make them do um, labor for you to explain something that, um, you know, the, the internet can explain to you or a book or audio book can explain. Um, it, but, you know, listen to those people and, you know, and it's like, oh, okay. All right. I get it. That doesn't seem like a big deal to me. Again, if you listen to someone, they'll surprise you. And you may find that their interests aren't so far from your own. Or you may find that their interests outside of InfoSec has absolutely nothing to do with InfoSec and therefore shouldn't impact your professional working relationship with them. An old white guy who has a chance, I, there's enough money in an in a IRA that I might someday be able to retire, maybe. Um, you know, so that's a very different world than a lot of people that are trying to get into our industry. And it's a very different world than. Um, a, a lot of, you know, uh, millennial white men. Um, the, econo the economic world's different.
um, you know, the economic world's different. And uh, so once you get out of straight white guys, um, even the younger ones are having more of a challenge. But once you get out of the, out of, you know, the, the club I'm in, um, it, it starts to get harder. And a lot of people dismiss that, but um, I don't know. I grew up in Dallas and our family didn't leave because of white flight in the sixties. Uh, so I saw things like, oh, wow, that sucks. Um, listen, you know, listen, that's it. So as more and more people are vaccinated, as we start to come out of our quarantines, what does Jack recommend? Things that I'm looking at now as the world starts to return to normal are that um, vaccinated or not, uh, there are still people getting sick. Uh, I won't out anybody, but there's somebody that was vaccinated that went to an event, an in-person event, and got a mild case of COVID in spite of being vaccinated. And that's what the vaccine does. It, it mostly keeps you from dying, keeps you out of the hospital, right? You know, the last thing I saw was well over 99% of the COVID fatalities in the U.S. right now are from for non-vaccinated people. But uh, with variants and whatever, vaccinated people are you know, could get a, a case of COVID. And we don't know how long it's going to be before we need boosters. So ease in, be careful, uh, give yourself time to adjust uh, the new normal. I've, I've run into this with multiple people who were used to being in large crowds and fed off of the energy of crowds and got back with people after being cautious. And they're like, that said, Jack is lying low this summer. He won't be attending Hacker Summer Camp. Not going to Black Hat and DEF CON this year. That's not a shot at them. They made a decision. They're handling it in what they feel is an appropriate way, and that's appropriate for them, and it's cool for the people that are going. I uh, am older, and uh, um, it's like, yeah, you know what? I'll go to Vegas. I have friends in Vegas. I'll go when the sun doesn't try to kill me, since we're, besides Las Vegas, will be virtual this year, as will Diana Initiative. Like, ah, people I want to go for won't be, they won't all be there. Uh, but, you know, my plan is to be there next year. And really, a lot of this reemergence comes with the burden of having lost something. And in a year where we've, um, we've lost some, uh, we lost R.C. Martinez, we lost, you know, Dan Kaminsky was very high profile. And as I said, then I was trying to remember, figure out why that one hurt so bad. Dan and I were friendly, but we didn't spend that much time together. We'd hung out a few times. We'd had a few conversations, but it's like, oh yeah, everybody's lost someone. Everybody's lost something. Um, even if you haven't lost anybody, even if you're really lucky and nobody's, you haven't lost anybody in this pandemic, you've lost things. Uh, you know, stores are closed, restaurants are closed, bars are closed. Communities that were on the ropes are even worse off. We've all lost stuff. So when there's a public loss, we all kind of latch onto it. And yeah, that goes back to, little compassion, a little, uh, including for ourselves, because if we don't take care of ourselves, we'll become the jerks and then everybody will not like us and we won't like ourselves. So you know, be kind to yourself uh, so that you can be kind to others and we'll get through this. I'd really like to thank Jack Daniel for taking the time to be a guest on The Hacker Mind. Jack has got so many important things to say. We've only just scratched the surface with this one episode and I hope to invite him back again for more conversation. Let's keep the conversation going. The Hacker Mind is now on a subreddit. You can look for us at Hacker Mind, all elite speak. The Hacker Mind is brought to you every two weeks, commercial free by For All Secure.
For The Hacker Mind, I remain the always civic-minded Robert Famosi. 